So um, just out of curiosity, before I, um, I start my talk, these are my disclosures, um, how many of you in the audience um, actually have experience prescribing or using biosimilars in your, uh, in your practice? Can I have a show of hands? All right. And for how many of your practices, was it a, just a blanket across the board switch? Or um, does anybody have a practice that just across the board switched to biosimilars? Okay. So what we're going to talk about today is we're actually going to get into a little bit more of the technical details as to how biosimilars became um, approved through the FDA, because I think it's important to know a little bit about the process, especially as you're counseling your patients as to what a biosimilar is. Oftentimes, they use the term biosimilar and generic interchangeably, but you really can't because they're actually very different. So these are the objectives of today's talk, and we're going to first start off with some definitions as well as going through the process that the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act of 2009 set forth in order to get a biosimilar approved to the market. So first, when we're talking about a biosimilar, it's actually a product that's highly similar to the reference product, notwithstanding minor differences in clinically inactive components. The reason why it's not a generic is, remember, generic compounds are chemicals. Biologics are proteins. So there's differences within the protein structures, which are much larger molecules. But you also have to demonstrate that there's no clinically meaningful difference between the biological product, so the biosimilar, and the reference product in terms of safety, purity, and potency. So with the biosimilars, you actually don't need to have a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial to show efficacy because that's already been done with the reference product. But you do need to show that there has been at least one comparative study in a condition that the original reference product is FDA-approved to show that there is similar safety, efficacy, and pharmacokinetics. Indication extrapolation based on that study that shows that they're essentially equivalent or non-inferior may be, uh, may be possible for other disease states where the reference product is approved. So, for example, with infliximab, we know it's FDA-approved for Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis. So if you can demonstrate that the biosimilar is efficacious and safe compared to the reference product in one disease state, you can potentially extrapolate to another. Then there's also the question of interchangeability, which means can you switch between a reference and a biosimilar product, which is likely what's going to come up in our practice more often. So when we talk about what this FDA approval process is, you actually have to demonstrate what's called the totality of evidence. And with the totality of evidence, there's a stepwise procedure to demonstrate that the biosimilar is in, truthfully, in truth, highly similar to the reference product. And the first is through pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic studies. The second is through studies looking at clinical efficacy and safety, including immunogenicity, antibody formation. And then finally, there has to be a pharmacovigilance program to look at post-marketing strategies, to look at adverse events that may develop, and also to make sure that the label clearly indicates the difference between the reference product and the biosimilar. So just a little bit about the nomenclature, because we use the terms pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics quite a bit. So pharmacokinetics, simply put, is what the body does to the drug. It looks at features such as absorption, medication distribution, metabolism, and excretion. Pharmacodynamics is what the drug does to the body, so the biochemical and the physiological effects. So for biosimilars, just demonstrating similar PK and PD properties is not enough to establish bioequivalence, but that's one step in the process. 
Step number two is that you have to demonstrate clinical efficacy, safety, and immunogenicity relative to the uh, reference product. So essentially, the key part is that there has to be no clinically meaningful differences in immunogenicity between the biosimilar and the reference product. There has to be at least one comparative head-to-head, double-blind, randomized controlled trial of the biosimilar to the reference product. And when you're looking at designing this trial, you want to choose the most sensitive disease condition and patient population to be able to detect differences between the biosimilar and the reference product. And also the trial, the study needs to be designed with the appropriate patient population sample size, enough of a trial duration and the right endpoints so that you can be certain that there's been sufficient exposure to detect differences and be able to identify these clinically relevant differences in safety, including immunogenicity and effectiveness. So finally, the third part is the pharmacovigilance. And this is the monitoring and the detection and the prevention of adverse events or drug-related problems. So you want to make sure that the manufacturers of the biosimilars are using uh, consistent manufacturing methods so that the product that they're producing is essentially the same agent each time with each batch. You want to make sure that the companies are also monitoring for immunogenicity and they're doing appropriate post-marketing surveillance, but they also have to be transparent about the nomenclature how they're labeling the biosimilar. They can't just say it's infliximab because that's the original branded product's protein structure. So they can use the term infliximab, but there has to be a four-letter suffix to that. And so there's four, uh, well, there's more than four, but in the U.S., there's predominantly infliximab biosimilars that are available. And the two most commonly prescribed are infliximab DYYB and infliximab ABDA. So if you see that in your patient's medication list, you know that they're getting the biosimilar and not the branded product because the branded product will just be infliximab. So how do we incorporate this into our practice? So let's start with a case. This is a person who has moderate to severe disease, a 29-year-old woman who was diagnosed with extensive ulcerative colitis four months ago who presents for a second opinion. She was a primary non-responder to mesalamines, and now she's steroid-dependent. Her symptoms increase when you drop the dose of prednisone below 20, which is a common scenario we see in our practices. Now, interestingly, her brother has ulcerative colitis, and he's doing phenomenally well on branded infliximab with Remicade. So anti-TNF is re- uh, therapy is recommended with infliximab, but our insurance company only approved infliximab DYYB. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, what is the data to support that using the biosimilar to infliximab, infliximab DYYB, is any different than using originator infliximab? So for a newly diagnosed patient with ulcerative colitis who needs an anti-TNF who's naive, can we use a biosimilar in place of the original product? So let's look at the data that established the essential bioequivalence. And this is data from what's called the Planetra study. It's in rheumatoid arthritis patients. So basically, patients with rheumatoid arthritis who had not been on infliximab were randomized to receive either infliximab or CTP13, which is the biosimilar to infliximab. Their dosing was three mg per kg for induction, and then they were maintained on every eight-week dosing. But in addition to the infliximab, they were all on methotrexate, either 12.5 to 25 milligrams per week. And the primary endpoints were, was their equivalent, uh, was looking at f- efficacy, safety, and immunogenicity. And as you can see, uh, is there a bar? So on the graph to the right, 
the black bars are CTP13, which is the biosimilar, whereas the gray bars are branded infliximab. So across all the various endpoints for clinical response, whether it's ACR, the American College of Rheumatology 20, 50, or 70 um, endpoints, that there was really no difference between the biosimilar as well as the branded infliximab. There are also no differences in adverse events, and there are com- comparable pharmacokinetics and the immunogenicity rates, which were actually quite high, even though they had combination therapy, was about 48% for both groups at week 30. So this is one study in one disease state that where there's an FDA-approved indication for branded infliximab that showed similar efficacy, safety, and immunogenicity. The second study is the Planetus study, and this was looking at an ankylosing spondylitis population. And these patients were randomized to receive 5 mg per kg induction of either branded infliximab or CTP13, which is the biosimilar. They received induction at week 0, 2, and 6, and then every 8 weeks of maintenance until week 30. So the goals of this were primarily to look at the pharmacokinetics. And as you can see from this graph on the right, that essentially the pharmacokinetics of CTP13, the biosimilar, was actually nearly identical to the branded infliximab. They also documented essentially similar efficacy between both groups and no differences in adverse events and immunogenicity for the branded infliximab and the biosimilar. So those were the two major randomized controlled trials comparing the biosimilar to the branded drug that showed that they were essentially no major clinical differences. So the FDA conclusions regarding CTP13, the biosimilar, said that the safety outcomes, including immunogenicity, were similar between patients treated with CTP13 and comparator products. They did not detect any new safety signals based on these two randomized controlled trials, and the safety and immunogenicity results support the conclusion of no clinically meaningful differences. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, that's great. That's rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. We're talking about inflammatory bowel disease. So how does this translate to our Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis patients? And so that's where indication extrapolation comes to play. So the FDA does allow for indication extrapolation, meaning that the biosimilar can be used for another FDA-approved condition um, for the reference product based on extrapolation of clinical data intended to determine, demonstrate biosimilarity. And sufficient scientific justification for extrapolation of data is necessary. So because this is already FDA approved for these inflammatory bowel disease conditions, this indication extrapolation is possible. But we want more data. We want to be a little bit more sure that our Crohn's and UC patients are going to be okay with starting a biosimilar in lieu of the branded product. So this is just one of, there are actually now multiple studies looking at um, comparing biosimilar infliximab to branded infliximab in the IBD patient population. But this is one study that was presented at DDW a couple years ago. It was a double randomized, double-blind control trial to compare biosimilar infliximab with innovator infliximab in patients with active Crohn's disease. So these are essentially new starts for infliximab. And as you can see, CTP13, the biosimilar, is the blue bars, and infliximab is the orange bars. And across the line, depending on what the endpoint of interest was, clinical response defined by a delta for the Crohn's disease activity index of 70 versus 100 versus clinical remission, a CDAI score less than 150, adverse events, and serious adverse events, no differences across the board. Now, you can argue these are clinical responses and remission only, there's no mucosal healing data, but this can offer some degree of comfort that they are similar for patients with active Crohn's disease. Then let's look at their week 30 data. 
in terms of clinical response, remission, now steroid-free remission, as well as antibody formation, immunogenicity, no differences between the blue biosimilar bars and the orange-branded infliximab bars. They also detected no differences in adverse events and week 14 drug levels. So with this, and this is just one example of some of the studies that support the potential for indication extrapolation for a new start of infliximab, these are all the reasons why the FDA approved um, CTP13, or the biosimilar to infliximab, for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. But there's a caveat. It's not for necessarily for everybody. These are patients who are newly starting. So when you're thinking about this in the context of your clinical practice, and you're forced to determine, well, should I use the infliximab biosimilar in this case? This supports using the biosimilar for IBD patients who are newly starting infliximab, who are truly naive to that particular um, uh, product. They've never received Remicade before. They could have received other forms of anti-TNFs, but they're new to Remicade. It also supports potentially using it to resume infliximab for somebody who was a primary responder in the past who discontinued uh, Remicade in the past for whatever reason and now needs to resume it. You likely can use a biosimilar in lieu of the branded product. Now let's look at a a different case. A patient who has moderate to severe disease who's in sustained remission on Remicade. Because this isn't indication extrapolation, this brings to the question of interchangeability. So this is a 29-year-old woman who was diagnosed with extensive ulcerative colitis five years ago. She previously had steroid-dependent disease. She was treated with branded infliximab induction, then maintenance. And now she's been in remission for the past four years on infliximab five mg per kg every eight weeks. She has no history of any infusion reactions. Her levels are good. She doesn't have any antibodies. And she just changed jobs and was told she needs to switch to biosimilar infliximab ABDA. So the question is, what's the data to support switching to biosimilar infliximab ABDA over continuing with Remicade in this scenario? And this is probably the scenario that your patients are going to ask you about because they're going to say, I've been doing so well on this Remicade. I don't want to go back on steroids again. My colon is healed. Is it safe? Is it okay? Should I switch to the biosimilar? So let's look at the data. So it, and first, let's talk about the FDA guidance on interchangeability. So, first of all, they have to demonstrate that they truly are biosimilar to the reference product. And you should be expected to produce the same clinical response as the reference product in any given patient based on indication. And if it's administered more than once to a patient, the risk in terms of safety, decreases in efficacy of alternating or switching is not greater than the risk of continuing with the reference product. So that means that we need some data that tells us that there's no differences when one person switches from the reference product to the biosimilar and potentially even back again. So this is the most commonly quoted study because it's probably one of the larger ones out there that's called the NORSWITCH study. Now, when you're looking at the NORSWITCH data, you have to keep in mind that the primary patient population of interest was not just inflammatory bowel disease. It was actually multiple disease states where infliximab has an FDA or approved indication. But within the subgroup, there was ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And basically, they took patients who were on a stable dosing of infliximab for at least, I believe, six months, and they randomized them to either continue with the branded product or to switch to the biosimilar, and they followed their outcomes over time. 
and across the board, they did not see any changes in trough levels, anti-drug activity, um, anti-drug antibodies, disease activity scores, changes in fecal calprotectin, C-reactive protein, or adverse events and serious adverse events for patients who switched from branded um, infliximab to the biosimilar, including the IBD patients. But it was not powered to really find a difference in these disease subtypes. So while it's reassuring that in this aggregate group of autoimmune conditions where infliximab uh, is used, that the biosimilar did not result in any major differences, we want a little bit more information specifically for our IBD patients. And that's where we can look at a couple other studies. So this is a study that was actually done by Anne Strick in the Netherlands, where it was a prospective study of adult Crohn's disease patients who were in a stable remission. And this was defined as a remission for greater than 30 weeks with a Harvey Bradshaw clinical disease activity index score of four or less with stable dosing of Remicade who, is, who were switched to the biosimilar. What they did was they checked their, mean, uh, their infliximab levels prior to the switch, and they were around three. And then they checked the levels again at week 16. For most people, it was after two infusions of the biosimilar, and they found that it was the same trough level. And at week 16, 86% of the Crohn's disease patients who entered, who were doing stably well, were still in remission, and there were no significant differences in C-reactive protein or fecal calprotectin. Only two patients had any serious adverse events, and only one patient developed antibodies. Similarly, another study that was presented at DDW earlier this year looked at 83 IBD patients, 57 with Crohn's, 24 with UC, and two with indeterminate. And they were, after they were on a stable dose, an interval of branded infliximab, they were switched over to the biosimilar, and they have data for 104 weeks of follow-up. And essentially, they found that there, there were really minimal discontinuations of the biosimilar due to loss of response or due to adverse events, and the likelihood that they were able to stay in a stable remission with the biosimilar was actually pretty high, up to 100, uh, 104 weeks. So 80, more than 80% of those patients continued on with the biosimilar without major changes in dose or interval with that switch. Only two patients of the 83 developed antibodies. So this is some of the data that may support interchangeability with the caveat these were patients who were in a stable remission with a stable dosing of the branded infliximab. So this kind of brings us to the question, okay, so now we have some data on indication extrapolation. Now we have some data on interchangeability. How should we use these in our practice? So when we're talking about positioning, because we have so many different options nowadays to treat Crohn's and colitis, how do we use the biosimilars? And it's very important to uh, to understand for yourself and for your patients that they are positioned in the exact same place as branded infliximab because they are biosimilar to infliximab. They are not a new mechanism of action. It's not a new anti TNF. It is a biosimilar to infliximab. So it's the same positioning as the originator products for infliximab-naive patients. And also, if you have clinically significant antibodies to branded Remicade, you don't want to be able to, you don't want to switch to the biosimilar to infliximab because those antibodies will cross-react. Also, if you're a primary non-responder to Remicade, you're not going to respond to the biosimilar to infliximab. You either need to switch to a different mechanism of action or potentially look for other options. Now, if there is a drug holiday, and let's say a patient was treated with Remicade and did well over a year ago, and they have a good history of response, no history of antibodies, then you can use the biosimilar in the rechallenge. The same principles for using combination therapy apply for the biosimilar to infliximab as they do um, to the branded. Interchangeability may be reasonable if it's cost-effective, 
based on the current data, but only for patients who are in a sustained remission with stable dosing. It's unknown what active disease does to the pharmacokinetics, immunogenicity, or uh, efficacy, because we do know that drug levels, antibody risk, and likelihood of response varies when you have active disease versus if, if you're in a stable remission. And we also don't know the impact of multiple switches across infliximab formulations. So for example, many of the studies looked at one uh, branded infliximab being switched to one version of the biosimilar. But now, I believe there's at least three FDA-approved biosimilars to infliximab. So what if you had three different infusions with three different iterations of the biosimilar, and then you went back to branded infliximab? Is that going to result in any damage, uh, any loss of uh, efficacy or increased immunogenicity? We don't know. So there are certain scenarios where we would not or I would not recommend switching. One is if there's active disease, because you don't know. Are you going to respond to the infliximab? Do you have the right dose? Do you need further optimization? I wouldn't recommend switching if the patient is a high risk for flare because they're not in a stable remission yet. Because you won't know if you switch from the branded to the biosimilar if the continued flare or the worsened disease activity was because of that switch because we don't have data versus lack of dose optimization or the wrong MOA. And I wouldn't recommend switching or, um, during high-risk conditions such as pregnancy because we don't have that data yet. If you are going to make a switch for somebody who's in a stable remission, it's probably advisable to check some sort of therapeutic drug monitoring and immunogenicity prior to the switch, because if their levels are low or if they have antibodies, you may need to make a dose adjustment before you make the switch, or when you make the switch, you may need to dose escalate or add um, some antibodies or maybe not use that medication at all. So with that, that is the end of my presentation on biosimilars, and I think we'll move on to the next one.